Buongiorno. This is Marcy Darling, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Martin Popoff here back again with another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. We are part of a vast and always expanding Pantheon Podcast network of music specialists uh, available on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Megaphone, 40 other podcast platforms, essentially uh, anywhere. Just Google away. You'll uh, you'll find us. Yeah, so this is episode 187. Uh, I'm calling this second album New Band. Kind of kind of struggled with coming up with a title for this. You know, when you do these titles, you don't want to make it too long. You don't have too many words. I don't even know what the word limit is. You don't want too much punctuation. But anyways, the idea here is um, the, the idea of uh, a band changing. So originally I had a list going and I had some research going where I wanted to talk about bands that changed radically or improved radically from the debut album to the second album. Um, and I started coming up with that and it, it was looking pretty good. I was going to do an episode on that, but then I realized there was enough to actually talk about, um, you know, literally bands that actually changed their genre after the first album. I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and then I was able to sort it into some categories. So we're going to do kind of what we, we normally do there. So this isn't just a big change. This isn't just improving. Um, that still could be an episode, uh, coming up sort of thing because, you know, everybody talks about the sophomore album curse, right? Um, but, uh, but you know, less less talked about is how bands improve a lot after that first album. Um, so, yeah, there, there could be something in that as well. Um, but, yeah, this is literally changing genres. Uh, so let's get into it with our first category here. Take a listen to this. This is Jethro Tull with Fat Man. Would rather be a thin man I am so glad to go on being one too much to carry around with you No chance of finding a woman who Okay, so the idea here with this first category is um, changing from essentially uh, something from the 60s into this new thing of progressive rock. Like people say, you know, progressive rock, when did it start? Is it, is it Moody Blues in 67? Is it, is it more the big pronounced change with, uh, with Yes and, uh, and um, Genesis and King Crimson into that period, 69 into definitely 1970? Um, but Jethro Tull is an interesting one here that I thought would be a good example because what happens with these guys, they go from the debut album, This Was, which came out in October 68, into this album uh, that Fat Man is from. This is Stand Up, August 1969. So it's it's not even a whole year later. But essentially what they're doing is they're transforming from what was sort of a... Uh, you know, a combination of a, a British folk revival band and a British blues boom revival band, but this with this weird guy playing flute, um, and there's harmonica and stuff. So the so the This Was album 
almost has a blues at the center of its or the, the idiom of blues at the center of its core or whatever right it's it's almost like everything is sort of uh, crowded around that but there are some folk elements uh, as well uh, but once you get to um, the stand-up album so this is them you know this is this is really early in the invention of progressive rock but this album is much more dynamic it's better recorded um this is the first one with uh with martin barr um you know mick abrams is gone check out bloodwind pig that's actually a pretty cool band as well um but anyways, he's gone. He wanted to stay with the blues direction. The other guys wanted to move forward. Martin Barr comes in. There's there's much more kind of like heavy guitar on here. There's much there's more progressive elements. The folk is even kind of cooler. It's even more um you know, well as you as you hear in this one a little bit, it's a little more percussive, it's a little more Celtic. So it's almost like what Jethro Tull does is is they is they go to extremes on all their things. They even actually still have some of the blues in this one as well. So they've got a little bit of all that, but they're they're essentially moving into uh, progressive rock. So I thought that was kind of cool. Also in this category is the likes of Van der Graaff Generator. Um, so they have the Aerosol Gray Machine, which was going to be a solo album, um, but, you know, it was put out under the Van der Graaff name, um, Peter Hamill, just to, to get his contract sort of sorted out. And so it, it came out as a Van der Graaff Generator album. But you look at that album cover, it's definitely pretty psychedelic. Um, this is a psych album, but um, even this one for 1969, it does feel like they are slowly moving. So, so it's a little more gradual with this one. But... Um, I think there is a pronounced change when you get to 1970 with the least we can do is wave to each other. Um, at this point, uh, they're much more extreme. It's still nightmarish. It's still quiet. Um, but you can tell they're moving away from that psych thing. Um, and, and if you've noticed here, the general theme is the idea of, uh, of psych becoming something old hat, maybe even something a little embarrassing. Times are changing. Uh, music's getting more exciting. You know, the, you know, we're growing rapidly, though even the psych thing was, was quite a rapid creative uh, growth thing. But I think it's, it's moving even more so. Other examples here are Genesis. Uh, where you move from the from Genesis to Revelation album, which is more of like a like a Canterbury quiet, folky, um, pop psych album, uh, and then they become basically a um, a progressive rock band, an absolute you know juggernaut with Trespass and uh, and you know nursery crime and selling England by the pound. So so they they make a big change at this point as well. Um, and another one that's that's uh, interesting here that, uh, you know, these are all a little bit different, but the Moody Blues themselves, who, you know, don't get enough credit for the invention of progressive rock uh, because they are so early with this thing. But they, they essentially changed genres after their first album. They have an album out... Um, as the as the magnificent Moody's essentially, but it's 1965, so what do you expect, right? Um, but it's more like a like an R and B pop album, garage rock sort of album. But then uh, they're they're 67 albums, so it's not that much later. But but they essentially um, uh, get into that invention of the psych sound with the, with the big Mellotron thing and all that stuff. Uh, 1967, Days of Future Past, and they're off to the races. You know, the album covers change. Obviously, the first one. 
it's just like a band thing and it looks like a mid-60s album but now now they're into the prog album covers as well and then the final one i think in this department um and i'm and i'm you you may see me you may notice that i'm leaving out talking about certain bands i mean we did have an episode 172 so not long ago called started as psych where where some of this ground was covered but i'm leaving out certain bands because again we're looking at bands here that that literally changed genres after their first album. That's sort of the, the strict template we're going here. So another one that's kind of interesting is uh, is Rush, um, because Rush, you know, I, I was thinking about this. Um, obviously, we know what happened. So they go from they go from sort of a uh, a a well, you know, it, is it dated? Is it modern? For 1974, is Rush Rush? You know, a pretty forward-thinking, hard-rocking album. It probably is actually pretty pretty decent and not particularly dated. If, if it had come out in 77, we might have called it dated, right? But for 74, they have this sound. It's pronounced. It's definitely not a psych, uh, psych. It's not a prog sound. So once you once you move to Fly By Night and Neil Peart comes in, um, there are they are radically changed. They're they're in this space where they're inventing progressive metal. But I I got to thinking about it and I was wondering, you know, you always hear those guys talk about their influences. Um, they don't say a lot about their influences, but the the two main things that you hear are that are that who cream Jimi Hendrix end of it Led Zeppelin end of it and then you also hear them say oh but we liked Yes and Genesis and all this well then why wasn't the first album that way and you almost think that you know John Rutsey was a little bit of an overbearing personality and he decidedly did not want to be that kind of band so you know, I, I posit the question, and it and it's surprising to me. Um, you know, having written some Rush books, um, it's surprising to me that I don't really know the answer to this. And it would be an interesting question to ask these guys. And and it's it seems kind of like a normal thing you would think someone would have asked them. But I'm almost positing that were they were they trapped by the vision of John Rutsey on that first album, right? Um, because, you know, you do hear them talk about he was a little bit of a wild man. They were kind of a little scared of him sort of thing. Um, and you wonder if um, if they almost were making that sort of, they wanted to do something else, but they didn't, they didn't, um, it, it's not that, it's not, not that Neil comes in and writes all their music or anything, right? So that's kind of the interesting thing. So, so it's, it's almost as if um, when Neil comes in, you know, they would probably give you the pat answer. Oh, now we had a drummer that could do that stuff, right? But I wonder if the deeper part of the answer is um, John was driving the musical direction of the band and we were kind of timid about that and, and timid about moving on with the new stuff. So, you know, with John gone and Neil in, it's almost, it's, I don't think it's that we have a drummer who could do this stuff now. I think it was that um, we can now write what we want to write kind of thing. So I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting idea. So there's your there's your number one category. Let's move on to our second selection here. Take a listen to this. This is the diodes with photographs from Mars. Oh, baby, you're Oh, 
Okay, so um, what I gave myself as a rule here, I wasn't going to play things from the first album because we're calling the second album New Band, so second album's in the title. So I'm playing things from the second album each time. You know, but I love the first Diodes album. So Diodes were like a punk band from Toronto, the only kind of heavy punk band we had. We had Vile Tones, of course, but they never put out a full album. Um, but the Diodes had this great heavy punk album from 1977 just called The Diodes, but... They move on immediately after after doing this punk album in 77, although it gets delayed, so it doesn't come out till 79, or, or the make, you know, the getting it out doesn't come out till 79. Um, and this is, uh, this is from the album called Released, and then they only had one other album after that, Action Slash Reaction, in 1980, which is kind of the same sort of thing. And what you're hearing on here is this is a band that has moved on from punk to new wave essentially uh still pretty decent stuff it's it's kind of cool it's it's interesting it's well recorded um but you know as kids we were we were angry young metalheads of course and shocked that uh that it wasn't like stacked power chords like the first album which is a really cool underrated punk album so i wanted to play that to to do this one now if you recall, the, the sharper of mind of you out there will realize that I did have an episode called, uh, episode 97 was called No Longer Punk. So this really has some overlap with that. But again, we're talking about only bands that change genres after the very first album. And I do have some other examples. Um, so yeah, just just before we go on, yeah, I had some notes about uh, about the diode. So the the second album was produced by Bob Gallo. He got around, and did a lot of stuff. Epic Records in Canada. So remember, this is a this is an Epic Canada thing. After year after a year of delays, ironically titled released after the band's internal problems with the label, it again opened with the track Red Rubber Ball. So they so they um they uh, brought back rejuvenated their cover of Red Rubber Rubber Ball, which was a bit of a hit off the first one. Uh, but yeah, this this basically didn't didn't uh, get any. Um, it, you know, the note goes on to say it didn't really get on, on any uh, airplay in the states, um, and they were kind of on the way down. But yeah, the the interesting thing here is all this great punk notoriety and the and their excitement of punk has kind of dissipated and changed in this new wave thing, where. Bands can go in a lot of different directions, and here they are going in one direction. Uh, so in 1980, it was the third album, Action Reaction, independent label, Orient Records, distributed by RCA, produced by Ian Gun uh, Gunther and Will Morrison. Um, let's see. Uh, the band played uh, in L.A., supporting, supported by the Circle Jerks and Agent Orange. They also played in San Francisco. Um, the year was rounded off by Cross Canada Tour with U2, Ultravox, Gary Newman, and Split Ends. Wow. There's a bunch of new wave for you, but uh, but yeah, the other ones that that really uh, come to mind. And I even went and did some research and look looked at big long lists of punk bands, and I went down it quickly and said, nope, nope, nope. Um, so essentially, the adverts did this right. The adverts had Crossing the Red Sea with the adverts, and then they had Cast of Thousands, which really ticked off a lot of people. It got terrible reviews. I love it to death. I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, but yeah, they basically turned off the distorted one-chord wonder guitars, and and you know there were big acoustic washes. It was almost like epic, the big music, Waterboys, Springsteen-esque. Um, but really, you know, not that big. It still it still felt like a new wave band doing that kind of thing. But check it out, the adverts, Cast of Thousands. Um, and then the other one uh, that that uh, definitely fits this is the Boomtown Rats. That first Boomtown Rats album was pretty heavy, well recorded, you know, power chords, up tempo, um, snarly. 
Um, but then, you know, it, it, right away, uh, and I remember the huge disappointment when I got the second album, Tonic for the Troops. Um, but now I love it. I love Tonic for the Troops. And I think the third one, Fine Art of Surfacing, is an absolute masterpiece. But they essentially went new wave. Now, none of these bands went post-punk. That's a whole different thing. We've got episodes on that as well. But yeah, these bands went uh, went uh, essentially new wave, uh, all, all of these. Um, and there aren't a lot of examples uh, that, that of punk bands that change from punk to a new genre after just one album. So there you go. That's that category. This episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are, are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash five songs. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash five songs. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. All right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Let's move on. Uh, Take a listen to our third track here. This is Savage with All Set to Sting. Okay, so Savage, you know, notorious story. We've told it before. They go from the massive, molten, killer, loose and lethal album to this hyperactive album. And uh, I got to be honest with you. um, I had set in my mind this story because I never played that hyperactive album too many times over the over the past few decades. I went back and played it, and it's a lot heavier than I thought. Um, but it does have this problem of uh, of essentially they're changing from new wave of British heavy metal because they're coming in late, right? So the theme here is, you know, in most cases here, the theme is jettisoning a dying um, a dying format. You just happen to have the bad timing of coming in at the end of that format. So Savage is coming in at the end of the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, Def Leppard's getting big. Uh, we're starting to see, you know, this melodic rock thing happening in America. So on this, you get, you get, um, you know, use of uh, a little more, you know, technical uh, electric sounding, electronic sounding drums. You're getting some gang vocals. You're getting a little bit more melody put in. You're getting a little bit more party rock. But frankly, again, um, this album is is quite a bit heavier than I thought. I still hear the old Savage Magic in it. So hyperactive, check it out. It's not that bad an album. Uh, All set to sting. Yeah, obviously we have like like a crazy scorpion sort of title on here. Pretty weird. Um, but yeah, um, you you definitely hear the changes in the band. But but there's still that that good old drunken heavy guitar and and those bedheaded Dennis the Menace vocals uh, on this band. But uh, they were they were always an example. I just remember being really disappointed by this album at the time. The other big one that fits this category um is uh, is jaguar so they go from that power games album which is a, a similar almost punkier version um but a good molten uh, you know quality new wave of british heavy metal they go to the this time album which is which is really courting this new melodic rock thing it's not really called hair metal yet so those are the two big examples a couple other weird ones that fit in the new wave of british heavy metal that i may as well mention here um Remember, you had Holocaust, the Nightcomers, and then their next album, they changed the name of the band to Hologram, and it's it's more melodic and a little more proggy sort of thing. But then they went back to Holocaust. But yeah, so that so they changed after one genre. I mean, that was really punky right in there, you know, really raw new wave of British heavy metal, and the Hologram Steal the Stars album was definitely not. Um, and also in this new wave of British heavy metal story, but going, going kind of in the other direction... Um, Two clear bands come to mind that that change genres from being a 70s hard rock band into a new wave of British heavy metal band. And the first one is Saxon. So that first album, even though the album cover is really new wave of British heavy metal, that first Saxon album sounds like a 70s band. There is no new wave of British heavy metal yet. But by the time you get to Wheels of Steel, they're like defining the thing. They're really part of it. They're one of the big 
early bands into that, you know, with the Big Eagle and stuff. It's you know some really good heavy songs on there, Motorcycle Man and all that stuff. Um, so so this is a band that that essentially updates their sound. They move from this wayward, we don't know what we're doing, kind of hard rocky, heavy sound. You know, it's not really in vogue. And then this new wave of British heavy metal comes around and suddenly they see that their timing is actually in a good situation. Um, And a similar thing happens with this band called Quartz, right? So Quartz has this debut album called Quartz in 1977, produced by Tony Iommi. Um, And it's just sort of this general hard rock uh, album with an absolute stone cold heavy metal classic in mainline riders mind you um, but yeah you know, a couple other heavy tunes on it but it's essentially we don't know what we're doing we're just this kind of untethered 70s band in 1977 um, and um, so they put out this album called Quartz when I got it it was called Deleted and it came in a paper bag and in between there's this stupid Quartz live album but their second album is absolutely a bona fide new wave of British heavy metal classic called uh, called um, Stand Up and Fight. It's on MCA, so they go from a small label to you know they're on MCA now, um, and it's it's just wall to wall really high quality. They've changed; they sound like a completely different band. So there you go, two bands that are changing from basically being some sort of seventies hard rock band into new wave of British heavy metal bands. All right. Let's move on to our fourth selection here. Take a listen to this. This is Sven Galley with Worms. Okay, so the category here is uh, bands that changed after their first album to a completely new genre, and this is from hair metal to grunge. Uh, and oddly enough, the two biggest examples I could find or think of at all happen to both be Canadian bands. Uh, so Sven Galley, um, they're they're a band that that essentially uh, had a a self titled debut called Sven Galley. There was quite quite a buzz on them up here in Canada. They were on BMG. It was beautifully blindingly produced. Um, maybe the songwriting wasn't quite there. Uh, but essentially, uh, you know, they, they had that album in uh, in 92. Let's see, how does this work again? Um, yeah, Under the Influence was a, was a big song. Um, they had a cover of Disgusting uh, by Teenage Head. So these guys were from, these guys were from Hamilton. But uh, what happens is uh, hair metal's dying. So this is 1992. So they're coming in late. They're coming in Canadian. Um, two two uh, you know black marks against them, right? Um, so so basically, uh, grunge has taken over. Started kind of in '91. This stuff is passe. So what do they do? Uh, three years later, um, they come back with their second album. It's called In Wire. Um, so it does that trendy grunge thing, grunge thing of uh, like smooshing two words together and making a new word, and of course, importantly, making one word uh, because grunge has a lot of these one-word titles, right? So they put out this weird, you know, it's just got this abstract art on the cover. It's called In Wire. Um, it's made in, uh, I guess, it's made a little bit in metalwork, but it's it's significantly made in Seattle. The producer is Kelly Gray, right? 
Um, let's see. It's a uh, guest uh, guest appearances by Christopher Thorne of Blind Melon on the song "Tired of Listening" and "Who Said," and both Kevin Martin and Scott Mercado of Candlebox, um, both on the song "Worms." So it's actually a, a really good grunge album. Um, beautifully recorded. Um, pretty heavy, but it's got a lot of variety as well. So, uh, yeah. But but up here in Canada, you know, people. Fans are cynical. We saw right through it sort of thing. Everybody thought, wow, jumping on the grunge bandwagon. Because again, if you think about it, not a lot of bands did this, jumping on a a grunge bandwagon thing. But the other the other big one who did it after one album is a Toronto band called Slick Toxic. So these guys had this this scrappy sort of Guns N' Roses image and the album covers. They had an EP out um, on Capitol here in Canada called Smooth and Deadly. Uh, and then they had an album called Doing the Nasty. Um, so 91, 92. So they're arriving late, right? Nick Walsh, you know, good looking guy, great singer, you know, a real superstar, right? And these guys had some star quality. They had some hype. Uh, Drew Masters up here in uh, in Canada was a big supporter of them. But um, here they are coming in late, coming in Canadian, uh, just like Sven Galley. So they go away. Two years later, they come back with their second album. It's called Ir- Irrelevant. It's got this Rorschach test blot on it. But it also is a really good grunge album. But they have totally, totally gone grunge. Um, I got a little help on this episode as well when I was uh, exploring uh, some of this by uh, with uh, Mick Phelan and Tim Derling. Tim Derling mentioned to me uh, an interesting story. Uh, the Bad for Good band, uh, I guess that was produced by Steve Vai. Uh, and the, this was kind of like um, the novelty was that they were like a boy band. I think the oldest guy in the band was like 16 years old. So there was this American band called Bad for Good um, and put out kind of a hair metal album. Um, but that's all they did. But they came back, but they changed their name. So it kind of just qualifies them they came back as lucy's milk and went completely full grunge i think that was up into 1994 so that's an interesting one um another one that kind of fits this idea is um skid row now skid row is did they didn't go hair metal to grunge what they did is they went hair metal to um some people say thrash um you know sebastian bach will exaggerate and say it was oh we were a thrashing band or whatever but you know if you looked at the the totality of that that excellent excellent slave to the grind album what what you'd probably say is that they went from hair metal and that he hates that even that debut being called hair metal but i think it's totally a hair metal album they went from hair metal to heavy traditional metal so they they almost came out of it as a as a cross between like dio and metal church sort of thing with with a little bit of thrashiness to it as well some real vocal fry out of uh sebastian bach like some good aggressive vocals as well um but you know there was still some aerosmithy sort of moves on it as well so it so it it retained a little bit of the hair metal thing um but oddly enough uh, you know, this was a band that actually did did go pretty grungy on on the third album, um, Suburban Race, right? Um, so there you go. I, I really couldn't think of too many other examples because, again, let's be strict here. Um, because I may do another episode. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert! I think I think I've got enough for a, another episode on bands that changed genres after two albums. Um, but essentially, I couldn't find couldn't find any other examples. Let me know uh, over at the Facebook page if you find any more. Let's move on to our fifth selection, though. Um, this is sort of a catch-all. Um, take a listen to this. This is Masters of Reality with Rolling Green. Rolling Green. Rolling Green. A great reforming shadow hanging over me. Silent. 
Okay, so this is a miscellaneous category to end off. Uh, Masters of Reality went from kind of a hard-rocking, um, uh, Rick Rubin, uh, Danzig-esque, uh, really cool uh, debut album in the Masters of Reality, self-titled, to this Sunrise on the Suffer Bus, which is more of like a general, mellower, experimental, alternative rock album. So you could say they went from heavy metal to alternative rock, blues rock to alternative rock, 70s rock made in the 90s to alternative rock. And part of this is Ginger Baker came in and I think he had a big influence on the band. They they eventually went back and had some other cool stuff that was um that was closer to the old sound. Um but yeah, there's a various there's a variety one, another one, a band that changed genres after one album. You could say MC5 did that, going from the Kick Out the Jams, which was heavy hard-hitting quasi-proto heavy metal garage rock to a band that was definitely informed by the, um, you know, I would say it was in, informed by uh, a retro sound to garage rock and a retro sound to the rock and roll revival. Um, Ministry is an interesting one. I, I, you know, it's debatable. So part of this this um, category is, is debatable, sort of. Uh, but I think from with Symphony to Twitch, there's definitely a big, big sound. You could say they, they went from synth pop too industrial i suppose they got more much more industrial after twitch but you could say there's definitely a pronounced change there you know if you were in those genres you'd say they were quite different so with symphony is 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 pretty light and optimistic and melodic synth pop twitch is definitely much more darker and experimental um you know, a funny one that I thought of including was ACDC and the Angels, both because their debut albums are kind of mellower and simpler and more rootsy and more traditional, and then they discovered their sound, which actually kind of both were sort of the ACDC sound. But the Angels, the Angels, uh, to no exit, big, big change. Um, is it a genre change? I don't think it's really a genre change, but it's almost like a they really found their sound change. So it's it's different from just being better at what they were doing. They they really kind of changed their sound, but they but they basically created this genre called ACDC and the Angels frankly participated in that genre. Um uh, Mick Phelan mentioned this one. I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, Steve Vai. Now, when you go from flexible to uh, passion and warfare, um, I think this was called right. Yeah, passion and warfare. Um, you get you get him moving from kind of a Zappa esque sort of uh, album, uh, some humor, uh, you know, some humor, some vocals, but definitely Zappa esque. Sounds like a Zappa side sideline album to something that is uh, is like a uh, squarely in, in the invention of the shred genre, but also feels like it's part of the hair metal world. Um, so I think I think you get him kind of changing genres as well. But although, frankly, both are in in the uh, that sort of guitar instrumental sort of thing. A um, couple that Tim mentioned that I kind of disagreed with after checking them. He mentioned he thinks that Ario Speedwagon changed a lot from their debut to Ario 2. Kind of disagree. And then he also thought that April Wine changed a lot to On Record. And I kind of disagree with that too. I mean, On Record does have a little more heaviness to it, but they're both still pretty poppy and folky. So I don't think you see a genre change there. Um, but frankly, when I was talking to Tim about this episode, um, you know, we weren't talking about genre change. We were just talking about, you know, have you have you changed quite a bit sort of thing. So so like I say, once I moved to genre, it was kind of a big thing. Another a couple interesting ones as well are Ram Jam from that debut to to the second one. I, I think they moved from 
kind of southern rock to modern heavy metal? Is that a genre change? Montrose, do they move from heavy metal to general rock um, from Montrose to paper money? Let me know. Um, Gary Moore is kind of an interesting one. Here we get isolated albums separated by a lot of time. So you've got Gary Moore back on the streets to corridor, corridors of power. I think he changes radically. He goes from this sort of general quasi-light bluesy rock thing to participating in his own way in the new wave of British heavy metal, you might say. Um, Glenn Hughes, uh, he goes from the Play Me Out album, but he doesn't have a solo album for a long, long time. He goes from this funky, soft R&B thing to becoming this more stadium rock R&B kind of artist. So does he change? Um, Warren Zevon, Wanted Dead or Alive. So this is a funny one because he, he puts out an album in 1970 and then as you would expect, he, he becomes this amazing, amazing, but much different artist when he puts out the Warren Zevon album in 1976. Um, so there you go. There's there's a few that um, that you could say a big, big change, even a, a genre change um, for various little reasons in our in our various categories. All right. Um, if you like this episode, want to support future episodes, please go to Kofi, uh, rhymeswithnofi.com, slash Martin Popoff. Hit that red support button. Buy me a coffee or a pint. It's a PayPal situation, $3, $6, whatever. Um, on that front this week, I would like to thank David Fisher, Darren Kasabowski, Peter Kerr, Dennis Lawson, Augustin Garcia de Prades, Monte Olson, uh, Steve Polari, Dan Rosenson, and Brian Sager. Um, on the book front, the Pink Floyd, I had to order more, so you can still get your Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. I got 40 coming in in the next couple days. 11 of those are sold already. Um, and uh, exciting here, the Merciful Fate book is going to be back in print in about two weeks. So I'll have the Merciful Fate book again. People keep asking for that one. And Flaming Telepaths as well, my Bluish Occult Imaginos Expanded and Specified. Uh, that thing uh, keeps going out of print. I, I keep thinking, oh, this must be the last 100 I need or whatever, 200. Um, but I keep needing them, and there's a backlog of orders there too. So if you want to get that, I'm, I'm threatening to possibly do a part two uh, at some point, which will probably drive me completely crazy. But uh, yeah, I'll have both of those back uh, eventually. But martinpopoff.com for all your book needs. Thanks again. Uh, you know, go listen to some. What are we having here? We had some Masters of Reality. Oh, go listen to all this stuff. Sven Galley. Check out that whole, check out that whole Sven Galley slick toxic story. That's pretty interesting as well. All right. Talk to you next time. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.